Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode, our guest is Tammy Cho, co-founder of Better Brave, an online site that combats sexual harassment, discrimination, and retaliation in the workplace by empowering targets and allies with the necessary resources and tools. Better Brave offers options for women to report harassment and provides a clear outline of their rights. Users can also access Better Brave's guide to learn steps to take before reporting an incident to HR and the importance of consulting an employment attorney as soon as possible to guide the response for optimal job protection. In our conversation with Tammy, we address the culture of sexual harassment in the workplace, the risks and harms from reporting harassment and discrimination, and the unbiased tools that Better Brave offers employees to empower them to speak out while reducing the possibility of retaliation. We also speak with Tammy about how we as individuals can do more to nurture a workplace culture that incentivizes equal treatment, respect, and accountability. Welcome, Tammy. Hello. So let's get started around your company, Better Brave. Can you tell us about the story of Better Brave and how you came to start that with your partner? Absolutely. So Better Brave is a third-party organization that provides employees with unbiased advice about how to navigate incidents of workplace harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. Um, We started this organization about one year ago, and it actually all started with the story of Susan Fowler and the rampant harassment and discrimination that she had experienced over at Uber. So Grace and I are both women from the tech industry. Um, Grace was a product manager, and I formerly founded another tech startup. And so both of us were incredibly familiar with the shame and fear that's associated with harassment and discrimination that happens in our industry. And when Susan Fowler's story broke around um, the, the harassment discrimination that she experienced at Uber, it was, again, reminding us how prevalent this issue still is. Uh, you know, she she had experienced more instances of harassment and discrimination than you can even imagine. You know, she, she received sexual propositions from her manager on her first day of work. And what made her story even more painful was what happened after she reported her incident to Uber, right? They said that nothing could be done as it had been her manager's first offense. And this actually later t- turned out to be a lie because multiple women had actually reported him in the past. And making matters worse, they retaliated against her after she reported her incident. Um, they wrote poor performance reviews and even threatened to fire her for speaking out. Um, and essentially, Uber saw Susan as a liability to the company and wanted to do what they could to get her to stop talking about it. And this was a turning point for us. And we decided that you know, we couldn't just stand back and continue to see incidents like these unfold. And so Grace and I then teamed up and decided that we were going to do something about it. We started with interviewing over 200 individuals targeted by harassment and discrimination in the workplace, witnesses, employment lawyers, diversity and inclusion experts, and many others to get a better understanding of the landscape. And ultimately found that 
amongst the many layers of um, complexity to this issue, a major issue that we found was that not only are there a lot of people who are experiencing harassment in the workplace, but these offensive numbers are consistent across every industry, whether it's entertainment, agriculture, hospitality, education, tech, to name a few. And the problem is amplified for individuals depending on factors like their sexual orientation, immigration status, age, and race. And we decided that we had to do something to address why this problem still existed in 2017. How, how did you and Grace identify these 200 individuals that you interviewed? We identified them. It was actually, unfortunately, very easy for us to identify these individuals. Um, so essentially, it started off with just reaching out to people in our own network and asking them if they had seen a story of Susan Fowler over at Uber and also if they knew anyone who had been affected by a similar experience. And essentially every person that we reached out to either had personally experienced something or they knew someone else who had experienced something in their workplace. And through that, we were able to connect with so many different individuals um, and learn about their stories and what, what they had experienced in the past. Wow. So would you say that these individuals represented a diverse sample size in terms of gender and um, socioeconomic background and age and all the different variables that are protected? Yeah, so we initially reached out to individuals in our own circles who are predominantly individuals in tech, um, but they did represent individuals from, um, you know, they were both men and women that we experienced, um, individuals from the LGBTQ um, community and the issues that they experienced were fairly similar across the board. Um, and uh, over time, we would start to expand our circles to individuals from different industries as well. And again, unfortunately, found um, the same patterns in those industries as well. How is your organization defining sexual harassment and discrimination? Is it just based on um, what the laws are currently that protect um, certain classes of individuals, or are there other definitions that you're um, trying to propose? It's a great question. So for us, we are defining sexual harassment based on the laws that are currently in place, but we are pushing for both employees and employers to go beyond what the law defines in terms of pushing for real change in the workplace. Um, the law is just the basic foundation for where we should start and make sure that we have addressed um, in our company policies and behaviors, for instance. But there's so much more that we need to do to truly create a really safe and inclusive workplace. Mm -hmm. So my understanding of the laws that protect against sexual discrimination in the workplace are really founded on Title VII's law, um, which was effectively there to protect against discrimination by gender or sex. Uh, is that your understanding as well? It was under mm -hmm. the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mm -hmm. that employers couldn't discriminate based on gender or sex. Then what happened was Lily Ledbetter uh, brought a case to the Supreme Court, Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber, which was determined in 2007 that effectively gutted that um, original act. Um, it was an employment discrimination that she brought up 
And apparently the Supreme Court, I believe it was a five to four decision, decided that employers cannot be sued under Title VII uh, over race or gender for pay discrimination if the claims were made by the employer um, past 180 days. And in the original Civil Rights Act up until 2007, it was interpreted by the lower courts that individuals could sue from the first date of the discriminatory act for up to 180 days after that. And the Supreme Court reinterpreted that um, time period as 180 days from the date they were hired. So effectively, they gutted that act. Um, so then subsequently, President Obama introduced the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, where he basically restored the original intention of the Civil Rights Act. When he came into office, it was his first act as a president in January of 2009. But then last year, President Trump effectively just uh, gutted it again, and he revoked those protections for women. In fact, the week prior to Equal Pay Day in April of 2017. So I'm wondering if you've heard of anything from the people that have been coming to your website to you know ask for mm-hmm. help um, about the challenges that they've seen since 2017 and the um, systemic barriers that they're facing from their employers because their employers have now been effectively empowered to not adhere to that act? It's been incredibly frustrating, actually, because um, we we actually recent, recently published a new guide that talks about the statute of limitations for reporting your incident um, and taking legal action against cases of retaliation, for instance. And, you know, the 180 days time period to uh you know, to take legal action is already short enough. And the fact that it was even the time limit was cut even shorter. Um, it's incredibly devastating to hear for a lot of the individuals that have reached out to our organization. And then reality is that it's incredibly difficult to make that decision to speak up in the first place. And 180 days is not enough. Um, we found that, you know, in our research, we found that nearly 71% of incidents initially go unreported to even your HR department for fears like shame, confusion, and lack of trust in HR departments. And on top of that, um, you know, that number is not unwarranted because nearly 85% of the individuals that have reached out to our organization so far have indeed experienced some form of retaliation, whether it was getting bullied, demoted, or even fired for reporting harassment. And they often tell us that it took them, you know, years to even feel comfortable enough to talk about their incidents with even their close family members, their friends, and make that decision to speak up, if at all. And so we have a lot of individuals that unfortunately recently have felt empowered to speak up because of the news that they've seen, um, you know, because of the Me Too movement, because of all the incredible work that the Time's Up organization is doing. But unfortunately, even though they feel empowered to take action now, they can't actually take any legal action anymore because their time limits have expired. Um, And that's been something that's been really incredibly frustrating for us to see. And it just goes to show that 
uh, we still have a lot of work to do um, to really push for different legislative changes as well around this issue. Mm -hmm. And with regard to the uh, prevalence of harassment and sexual harassment in the workplace in particular, I've seen figures anywhere between 25% to 85% of surveyed employees have been harassed. So even on the, you know, taking the conservative number, 25%, one in four, is that surprising to employers that you've spoken to when they're presented with these figures? What is their response? <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. I think at this point, employers do understand that sexual harassment is a very prevalent issue across industries. Um, but too often they like to think that although this number is the norm across industries, it's something that does not exist in my own workplace. And so they think that they're the exception to the statistic. And the reality is that they're not. They're just not aware of it. And part of it is, again, related to how most employees don't feel safe going to their HR department to report incidents. And so there's these incidents that are occurring in the workplace, but the employers are not being, not creating a space that are safe enough, that feels safe for employees to speak up. And that means that these problems, though they may not be hearing reports about it, is still existing, <laughs> still exists in their, in their um, workplace. And so that's why we really encourage employers, even if you think that you that this issue might not be an issue in 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 your own um, work you should um, take proactive measures to try to change your company policies demonstrate to your employees that you are trying to create a safe space where employees should feel comfortable speaking up and you should try to increase the number of reports that are made to, within your own company as well because it's better that those incidents are reported early on so that you can nip the problem in the bud before it escalates to something even bigger. These employers that you're speaking with, are they, it seems that a very easy way to verify if their suspicions are correct is to just survey their employees anonymously and get feedback and collect data. I guess, assuming that you know, there's a way to anonymously collect data without tracking it back to the employees. But mm -hmm. is that something that they're verifying somehow? Yeah, I think that's something that we've seen some larger companies take steps in doing, which is surveying their employees anonymously to collect that data. And that's one step in the right direction. I think it is a little bit trickier for smaller companies. For instance, if you're a small business or if you're a startup, to survey your employees anonymously just because there's very few employees. And so in those instances, the employees won't even want, still don't feel necessarily safe speaking up because they feel like just because there's such a limited number of employees, it could still be traced back to them somehow. Yeah, so that's one challenge in terms of these anonymous surveys for smaller, smaller size businesses. So in terms of deterrence, you know, you spoke of the Susan Fowler case at the beginning of our conversation in Uber, which is, of course, a multi-billion dollar company. Right. It doesn't seem for that organization, at least, or for big ones like Uber, 
that financial deterrence are sufficient. From my research, the average harassment claim can typically cost an organization anywhere from $75,000 to $125,000. So given the rates of reporting even and all the impediments that you've cited that keep someone from even reporting, it seems like that's a chance that employers are willing to take. And, And even the cost um, that was estimated for Fortune 500 companies. I found a figure that the average Fortune 500 company loses $6.7 million per year due to sexual harassment, which to me sounds, it's like a drop in the bucket. Um, mm-hmm. So how have companies that you've worked with, how, how much weight have they given to the financial costs of sexual harassment and discrimination in terms of obviously the legal cost, but also the opportunity cost and the turnover and the productivity impact that these situations would have on the company? Yeah, it's another great question. Um, I think companies have not necessarily considered the financial consequences of allowing sexual harassment to continue to exist in their workplaces. And I think just now, because of the you know, Me Too movement and the times of movement that have been going on, they're starting to look more into what how this issue impacts their bottom line. And I think over time, as more employees are empowered to take action on their situations, companies will see a bigger hit to their bottom line because there are many issues that have been festering in their workplaces that they weren't even aware of prior to this movement that are probably going to start coming to the surface. And so I would encourage employers to take that step in really reevaluating the workplace culture and setting new systems in place to try to address these issues before it grows into something bigger. And, you know, one thing I also wanted to point out is a lot of times So going back to the issue of this issue of underreporting in the workplace, where the majority of incidents go unreported for reasons like shame, confusion, and lack of trust in HR departments, I think something to note is that the current system and, you know, over the past decades of employment, a lot of the knowledge that we have about our rights in the workplace And what we're supposed to do when we experience harassment and discrimination has really been shaped by the employers themselves. And so the norm has been for us to think that, okay, I experienced harassment in the workplace. So um, my only option is to go either report it to HR or kind of suck it up and either stay quiet and just keep trying to plow through my job or I switch jobs or I switch industries. And I think since this movement has come about and even with our organization having done more research in this issue, it's realizing that, no, we can actually create a system of accountability for these employers. And our way of doing that is to really empower these employees with knowledge about their rights, um, whether you were targeted by harassment by yourself, whether you witnessed it, or if you want to be a proactive ally in the workplace, um, having knowledge of your rights can really help you keep your own employer accountable to do the right thing. So in the past, you know, before these movements, maybe you thought that um, your only option was to report to HR. And if you got retaliated against, you didn't have any options. But now, hopefully, with all these organizations that have stepped up and hopefully with the resources that we created to help you inform 
help inform me of your rights, you now know that if a company retaliates against you, it's illegal. So here, here are a plethora of other organizations and resources that are out there to help you navigate what you're supposed to do um, and what actions you can take to really make sure that your employer is doing the right thing. I think that's a great segue to the Better Brave resources that you have for the various stakeholders in this space. Let's turn to the guide for targets. So besides the knowledge of their rights, um, there's so many different kinds of discrimination and harassment, and it also falls along a continuum in terms of the impact as well as the intent in some cases, I would assume. So I'm wondering if you have any data around just the distribution of discrimination and harassment cases. What is the most common and what is the most easily addressable by an organization? In terms of being addressable by the organization, could you clarify? Is that uh, like like, rem- like like remedy? What can what can they easily remedy? Um, and I was thinking more that you know if someone made mm-hmm. um, along that continuum comments or acted in certain ways, engaged in behavior that they weren't aware of that was offensive or discriminatory or et cetera, that that gave them more weight to possibly be, you know, receive training by HR or to engage in some sort of mediation or some mm-hmm. um, employment process that would help bring both sides together and and work it out. Whereas if something was more, you know, along the physical lines of discrimination or harassment or it just made it unbearable for someone to go to work every day, then that, you know, would be on the other end of the spectrum and, and less likely um, that the employer would want to be responsive legally <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, historically they've been very protective of their senior employees. And if it's a low-level person making an accusation, um, they're going to protect the one who's, you know, more have, has more seniority is my guess. So are right. there any kinds of categories that are most commonly reported and what are the categories that are most commonly remedied? Yeah. So I think one thing, I guess, just to start off that I think companies can address right away is how they handle reports of harassment, regardless of what type of harassment it is and where that harassment lies on the spectrum. Um, and reason being, you know, the majority of cases that we receive as an organization are cases of retaliation from employers. So that's essentially when an employee reports an incident to their HR department to try to find some type of remedy. Instead of trying to help the employee reach some type of resolution internally, their liability sensors go up and they try to figure out ways to either silence the reporter, whether it's you know moving them to a different department, having them sign NDA or non-disclosure agreements, and just throwing their legal team at how to you know protect the company from any further liability because of this issue, rather than trying to reach a resolution for the individual. And that's already the wrong approach that companies are taking. And that's almost one of the easiest fixes that companies can do, essentially. So that's one one item. So to Um, summarize, you're, you're suggesting that companies adopt standardized reporting procedures that they inform all of their employees of um, so that there's a clear process for what happens and what to expect. Right. So companies should implement very clear processes for how individuals 
should report their incidents to their HR departments, but also internally how their um, human resources department should address these different cases that have been reported. Okay. And then what, what next were you suggesting? The other piece is something that we've commonly seen, but studies have shown is not as effective, is there are companies that also try to implement policies to the other extreme where they implement these zero tolerance policies, where if regardless of what, where your action lies on the spectrum, if you do something, then if you do something that remotely represents or seems to resemble harassment, then you're going to be terminated as an employee. And there's been a few studies that actually show that this is counterproductive because one, a lot of the individuals that do experience harassment often are not looking to get their harasser fired. For instance, um, they want, if it was just one uncomfortable comment that was made, um, they report to the HR department with the intention that hopefully HR can talk to this individual, say, hey, this comment made um, some of your coworkers feel uncomfortable. We hope that you refrain from that. Um, it's definitely not the case where they report this individual and want that person to be fired for one comment that they made. But policies like these, where it's extreme zero tolerance policies, actually then scare the individual from reporting the incident in the first place. And an issue that could have been nipped in the bud then escalates potentially into something bigger because this individual who made the comment had no idea how their behavior was making them others feel. And that individual may continue to make those similar comments and continue to make their coworkers feel uncomfortable. Um, and so another change that these uh, companies can implement is really defining what the different spectrum of um, behaviors there are regarding harassment and discrimination, and then being able to outline um, the different consequences that these in individuals would face depending on where their behavior lies on the spectrum and making that really clear to the entire to the entire company. Do you have resources to uh, offer employers that help them with defining the spectrum of behaviors? Yeah, so we're currently working on building out some resources to help employers define these behaviors. Um, but there's also a, a bunch of other great organizations that have been doing some of this work already to start. And um, a couple of the organizations are um, like Features Without Violence, have quite a few different resources on this. In the tech industry, there are organizations like Project Include that have also been working to help define the spectrum for employers as well. Mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with Project Include. How would the tech industry be different than other industries? I'm curious about why they, they would produce something that's specific to a particular industry. Are there um, parameters in that industry that differentiates it from others and therefore would differentiate the response that an organization would have? Sure. I think there are a lot of different factors that would differentiate how different organizations respond. For instance, size of company plays a huge role. Um, I had mentioned previously that, you know, if you are, you know, doing anonymous employee surveys may work for really large companies with employees over, you know, 500 individuals um, or even several hundred individuals, it might work. But if you're at a really small startup, for instance, um, and, and anonymous surveys are less effective. And so uh, Project Include also has narrowed in on the tech industry and really defining what the nuances are for tech companies and have built resources to help those tech companies really address issues that are 
specific to their industry. Mm. It seems to me, I was going to suggest this earlier, that um, it would be a great resource for Better Brave to produce is uh, um, how to prevent and build a culture Mm. of inclusivity and diversity and acceptance uh, for these small tech companies that can't freely survey um, without employees feeling unsafe. Um, That if they were to just you know, avoid kind of getting there to begin with by building a culture that they're looking for, then they wouldn't have to deal with this to begin with. And perhaps they need more assistance on how to do that. Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to really um, explore and take deeper dives into these different industries as well. You know, when we first initially launched um, our guides and resources have because we wanted to reach as many individuals as possible and support as many individuals as possible, our resources have been broader. And, you know, the next phase for us is we want to really take deeper dives into different industries and explore the nuances and the challenges that are specific um, to these different industries, whether it's the tech industry, the retail education sector and more. And just going back to the spectrum of behaviors, that guide that you're working on, is there a plan in that guide to also have recommended responses to each of the actions based on where they are on the spectrum, legal as well as cultural responses? Absolutely. So for for the guide that we produce to address the different uh, types of behaviors along the spectrum, we also want to ensure that we provide some actionable next steps. Um, because it's not enough to just be able to identify, just be able to identify the behavior itself. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, putting myself in the shoes of someone who has something to report. I, beyond you were citing shame and fear, and of course, fear of retaliation, but just the discomfort of knowing that once you report the relationship that you have with whatever individual could be your supervisor, could be your coworker, has now shifted the relationship that you have with everybody else in the unit. And unless that unit understands and is respectful of employment practices that you desire for the organization to have, they may not be supportive, um, regardless of if the organization is supportive. There could be cultural repercussions that are negative in terms of being ostracized or being made to, you know, feel guilty for disrupting the dynamics, you know, of the team, for example. And I, and I'm wondering how an employer would respond to that if that were to happen. Like, how would they even assess whether that's a risk before they decide what to do? Yeah, that definitely happens. We've, I remember speaking there's been quite a few stories around this that we've heard in the past, but um, one particular incident that I'm reminded of is this one woman had reached out to us because she had reported her boss for sexual harassment, and he was very well respected among her community. Um, a lot of her coworkers really enjoyed working with him and appreciated his mentorship and would rave about him to her. And the moment they learned that she had reported him for an incident of sexual harassment, rather than supporting her as her colleagues, turned against her. And she knew immediately that they had heard that she reported this incident because um, she had her colleagues come up to her and tell her that she's a liar to her face. Tell her that, "How how could you do this? He's such a great person. Why would you lie about 
why would you lie about how he treated you? He's such an incredible mentor. Um, and we should all be grateful for him <laughs> being part of this workplace. And I was, I was heartbroken to hear that that was the experience that she had. And even when the company tried to do the right thing, the fact that her coworkers weren't there for her um, was alarming to hear. And I think one thing that companies can do to prevent this is to really offer proper training at all levels um, of the company. And so whether you're in senior leadership, whether you're a manager, um, I think it's it's required for managers to get harassment, but not necessarily employees. And so companies should also adopt employee level um, trainings so that coworkers know how to treat their employer or their coworkers and colleagues when they learn that they have reported an incident of harassment. Um, and I think that can make a big difference. Do you, do you know in that example, if the coworkers that were upset at her were really disbelieving her claim or they were just saying that they disbelieved the claim because they were upset that the um, the male supervisor was had had been reported. Did any of them believe her? Um, she did have some coworkers that believed her, but it's hard to say. I mean, why they had reacted in such a way, since I haven't spoken to them. But I imagine it's a little mix of both. Mm. This reminds me of the the way um, in in many of my other interviews with survivors and advocates um, of domestic violence and other forms of sexual violence, there's a whole range of responses that their families and communities have had that's been a problem uh, systemically and obviously personally for these individuals. And and one of the things that I've tried to uh, address in my show is to teach people how to be upstanders. Um, So this, I think, falls right in line, which is your guide for allies is, you know, addressing how to be a supportive ally in the workplace, um, regardless of what your personal opinions are and and um, how you might benefit from not you know being a supportive ally. So, what can you? Let's turn to that. What are your? What does your guide for allies include? Yes. So we learned the importance of really to really change the company culture. It requires people from all levels of stepping up. And that includes that we can't put the responsibility on the individual who have been targeted by harassment to try to change the company culture because there's already so much they have to deal with regarding their own incident. And so the next step is for everyone around them to really push for a safe and inclusive workplace culture and to really push senior leadership to do the right thing. And so not to push their senior leadership to do the right thing, but also take steps to be an ally in the workplace every day. Um, and so what our guide for allies really tries to highlight is reminding these employees that you actually have the power to change this culture by the little little actions that you may, you know, little actions that don't require much effort from your part, but can actually make a huge difference um, in your company culture. And For instance, some of the advice that we provide through our guide for allies is if you're in a big board meeting and you hear an inappropriate comment made about one of your coworkers, there are actually simple things that you can see in response to show that you stand in solidarity with the coworker that had heard the comment. Um, For instance, just saying, 
just voicing something like, oh, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> or saying, oh, that, that wasn't very cool. Some simple phrases like this can make a huge difference for the individual that had heard the comment. Other strategies that you can employ as an ally is if you don't want to make a scene or if you feel uncomfortable speaking out in the moment, even just going up to your coworker at the end of the meeting to say, hey, I, I heard that comment that he made about you earlier. How did that make you feel? And if your coworker, you know, didn't mind the comment, then no action needs to be taken, right? But if your coworker does voice some sense of concern for it, um, you can also offer to support them or stand by them if they want to report that incident or um, even offer just to show your support in the case that another comment like that is made again. What about in the example you just gave, what about if you said, if the coworker doesn't mind, no action needs to be taken. But if you're bringing it up to the coworker, then there's something about it that made you feel uncomfortable. Wouldn't you want to bring it up because of that? Your your response to observing as a third party uh, something that happened, even if that individual may not feel the same way as you do. Right. That's a great point. Um, I think that's... Um so if, if you hear a comment that makes you uncomfortable, then we do encourage you to speak up and report the incident as well, just because the more people that we can have, whether you're a witness or whether you're, you were the one who was targeted by the incident, the more that you feel comfortable reporting incidents, even as, you know, no matter how small that you think the incident is, um, they can all be signs that, you know, there might be a bigger problem um, down the road. Um, and speaking up early, often early, can really help um, address these problems before it escalates even further. I think something that we do try to push allies to consider, though, is if, let's say for this incident, the comments didn't make that individual feel uncomfortable, but it made you uncomfortable, you could report it from the perspective that it made you uncomfortable. Um, because without necessarily having to without saying that this incident made your coworker uncomfortable, if that makes sense. I see. Um, but wouldn't ultimately, right. if you were to uh, report that to HR, they would mm-hmm. be required to interview your coworker mm-hmm. to even verify that the comment was made. Right. And, right. and I'm also wondering, are there any tactics that you recommend that employees use to minimize the potential negative response that an employer might have. So for example, should you try to talk to other people who listened and who heard that comment and get some support or validation that there were others who responded in a similar way as you did? Or would that be considered, would that put you at risk for being kind of an instigator, especially if the target was not um, supportive of of your uh, interpretation? Yeah, I think I think it is fair to talk to your coworkers and ask them at the very least to say, hey, um, like, how did this comment make you feel? Uh, just to see if there was anybody else. It's an open-ended question that you can ask to your coworkers and um, they can share how they felt about that comment. Um, but other strategies that we do encourage employees to take is, you know, if there is an incident that did make you feel uncomfortable, um, what we really encourage more employees to do is also just to document the incidents, um, even if it's just on your personal computer, just typing a little note that, hey, like there was this one incident on this day during this meeting um, with these people present that um, this comment was made that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, whether you decide to report that incident to your HR department or not. 
Um, so just keeping a log of these incidents would be helpful just in case there's a situation that arises down the road where you may need to um, share that um, document with your employer. To be, it reminded me of, of, um, of course, of James Comey taking co- contemporaneous notes um, when he was having meetings with um, Trump. So it's great, great idea. Great tip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So, so the other part of your resources is where to find help with attorneys. And I'm wondering how many of the people who actually go to your website um, to seek out resources actually take that step because these attorneys are not free, obviously. Uh, Is there some sort of different retainer structure that they have for employment discrimination or sexual harassment cases? Are they on commission for winning the case or do they have to pay an upfront retainer? Yeah. So in terms of our where to find help section, we actually help individuals connect with any type of expert that's right for the situation. So it could be, it includes attorneys, but um, it could also be anything from support groups, therapists, and even in some cases, organizations that offer unemployment services. So it's essentially anything to really help you navigate your incident. Um, And then in terms of the resources that are specific to providing legal help, We often partner with um, different national organizations that offer these legal services, often often pro bono or subsidized, but at the very least, they offer free initial consultations, um, just so you can kind of share your story with them and get a general overview of what your options are based on your situation, just because every situation is also very unique. Um, And so we partner with organizations like the Equal Rights Advocates and leverage their attorney network as well as um, Time's Up, who also has created a network of attorneys that um, can consult individuals on their situation. Mm-hmm. So Time's Up actually has a legal defense fund, right? So does, does that mm-hmm. mean that anybody who uh, whose um, situation falls under the Time's Up category would be eligible for getting some free initial consultation? That's right. So anyone who reaches out to the Times of Organization can get free initial consultations. So all initial consultations through our partners are free, thankfully. It's what happens as a next step if they, for instance, if you decide to pursue further legal action beyond the consultation, then you would work with the attorney on and uh, see what their fee structure is like. And then the Times of Legal Defense Fund has been established so that In the case that you're not able to afford legal representation for yourself, you can actually have your attorney apply to the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund and get part of your um, legal fees subsidized. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And, And what about in terms of outcomes for your site? How are you measuring success, whether it's with regard to employers and reducing these instances of discrimination and harassment, uh, whether it's um, targets or coming to your website and seeking a certain outcome, what are some of the measures for success? Yeah, so we have a couple different measures of success. And I think our very first step for us as an organization is really focused on spreading the word about Um, our resources and so that we can equip more individuals with knowledge about their rights in the workplace and strategies for being an ally. Um, And so something that we've tracked in regards to that is the reach of our resources. 
And one of our goals for that is to be able to reach a million individuals over the course of the next year and really equipping them with our resources that way. Another you know, outcome that we're looking at is how many of the individuals that we reach can we then inspire to take some form of action um, in reaching, some, uh, reaching a resolution for their case, whether it's connecting them to a therapist or a support group or an employment lawyer to help them navigate their, uh, navigate their incident. And so another metric we're tracking is how many individuals actually contact us to get connected to other resources. And we've been really excited because over in the past year, we've been able to help over 1,500 individuals connect with resources so far. So the 1 million for next year, is that in terms of downloads of your documents? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And what if someone comes and there is an action, let's say they meet with a therapist, but there's some outcome to their employment case, like there's this, you know, retaliation and they can't afford to sue and they become unemployed. How are you tracking those instances? Because initially it seems like a success, but then would you, would you know even if they become unemployed and something else happens, they you know, become homeless yeah. <laughs> as, an, as a result, for example? <laughs> right, right, right. That's, that's a great point. Um, so that's something that we also do want to track. So figuring out whether, um, you know, after we connect them to different resources, what, what happens next and being able to track whether they're able to, for instance, win their case or Unfortunately, if the case is that they are unemployed, we want we want to know that too. Um, and the way the best way for us to do that is what we do is again, our organization is really dedicated to helping these employees navigate their incident from beginning to end. Right, so we follow them throughout the entire journey, and we keep our lines open so that let's say um, we connect you to an employment lawyer, we'll continue to follow up with you to see how things are going, and if things are not going well. You can come back to us and then we'll be able to connect you to other resources. So in the case that the individuals that reach out to us keep us in the loop and keep us updated on the progress, we'll be able to track the success of their uh, their engagement with our organization. But in the case that they don't respond or um, you know don't feel comfortable sharing what the next steps were, we just don't have access to that data. But otherwise we'll be able to track what next steps have been taken and really follow them on their journey. Okay. And so do you effectively remove them from the data set if they don't respond or you just you just have that as a separate category? That's something that we will probably continue to track regardless. Um, but just note that, you know, know whether they had responded to us or whether they haven't. Yeah, I, I think, you know, especially for having worked in, in the um, opportunity youth space, a lot of the people mm. that we were tasked to provide employment or educational outcomes to, they weren't responding because their cell phone changed. Um, mm, and so you yeah. had to, you know, find them through other means, through friends or friends or, you know, later right. cohorts who happen to know them, they might anecdotally share. Um, so hopefully that's something that um, you were able to, you know, find a way to um, to stay in touch with the all the, all the uh, people who come to your website and get the data that you need to really be responsive to what their needs are and, and create, right. you know, services that continue to support them. Yeah, we hope so too. Um, and that's something that we've constantly been trying to work on is ensuring that all of the programs and all the resources that we provide 
provides true value for these individuals. And so any feedback um, that we can get along the process will be incredibly valuable, Hmm. not only for the individual themselves, but for all the future individuals that we hope to serve. Okay, I want to turn now to a news item from earlier, just a few months ago, actually in August, the EEOC filed a lawsuit that involved employers across basically all different kinds of service industries. Um, So country clubs, cleaners, sports bars, airlines, healthcare facilities, and grocery stores. Coincidentally, it was all service industries. We've heard a lot from the Me Too movement around different sectors of the economy being more vulnerable or employees from different sectors being more vulnerable to harassment, sexual harassment and discrimination. What is it about the service industry that you think makes it both less adherent to following proper employment practices and more susceptible to these kinds of suits? Yeah, so there was actually um, a Vox article that was published about some of this, um, the data around these service industries, um, which I found super interesting. Um, And so obviously employees from the restaurant, coffee shop, hotel type of industries have um, accounted for a majority of the reports, the sexual harassment claims that are filed with the EEOC. Um, and some of their findings was that, you know, um, in a lot of these male dominated industries, um, women are often seen with seen as outsiders or individuals with less power than them. And so the, it makes them more susceptible to um, experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace. Some other factors that we think may influence why the harassment rates are so high is that I think, um, you know, factors like immigration status also heavily impact um, the level of power and leverage that you have in your workplace, right? And so we've actually often heard stories from individuals who are in the restaurant industry and are undocumented. And so because they're undocumented, they're um, you know, their managers and their coworkers know that fact about them and they use it against them to keep them quiet about their situation. Um, and this imbalance in power makes them more susceptible to harassment as well. And I think the service industry has, um, you know, a lot of individuals in the service industry are in this, um, in this situation. I've also read that a lot of the owners of these restaurants, especially the small, smaller businesses, find it economically um, not viable to be uh, following the law, basically. And I'm wondering um, how you would respond to that in terms of you know how the margins of various service industries are so thin that it actually makes them un- less willing to do the right thing with regard to the undocumented employees and it would make it unsustainable for them to continue if they were to you know pay them at the right rates and treat them properly and that the one way to sort of get them to accept these poor working conditions is to leverage their power over them in these other ways including their immigration status yeah that's a great point so i think um you know one area again is one way to address this and the fact that these employers feel so comfortable 
doing the wrong thing is to really, again, empower these individuals in these industries to understand that even if they're an undocumented immigrant, that they still do have some rights and that there are organizations out there to support people who are specifically in their situation. And the name is escaping me right now, but I, I need to get to you the name of the organization. But there are a couple different um, organizations that offer legal services specifically for undocumented immigrants and help them navigate incidents of sexual harassment that they experience. So there are resources such as that. And there's been another movement that has been organized by a woman named Sara Jayaraman called One Fair Wage. And it's a campaign that is pushing for fair wages across the restaurant industry because um, currently at the current, the current system, it's structured in a way where these individuals feel like they may have to deal with sexual harassment just to be able to cover their rent and survive. And so pushing for a one fair wage across the restaurant industry can then help balance some of the power dynamics in place that um, allow issues like sexual harassment to fester. I, I actually just saw an interview with Jane Fonda, who was talking about how she and Lily Tomlin are going across the country to promote one fair wage. Mm-hmm. And my response to that was, why aren't they dealing with equal pay, the gender pay gap? Um, why aren't we looking at the systemic lo- issues in terms of like our tax laws, our trade laws, our um, obviously the you know, gender pay gap and, and pregnancy discrimination, all these laws that foster um, incentives for organizations and employers to discriminate and to engage in poor practices and harassment and disempower employees from being able to speak up. I, I, what do you think about addressing the systemic barriers? Yeah, I think it's important for us to be able to address the systemic barriers. And I think the the campaign to push for one fair wage in the restaurant industry is just one step of it. Um, but I think these little steps that we can take it, are all incredibly important to our overarching goal of pushing for systemic change. And so I think if there's concentrated effort to address this in even one industry to start with, then we can then hopefully take that model and repeat it across industries. And maybe that could then contribute to the overall systemic change as well. But it, it will require efforts from from all angles. Well, I'd love for you to be able to add that section of resources to your website as well. Is just what we can do from a national um, and state and local level to change mm-hmm. our laws, to actually um, nurture and incentivize employers to create practices that are fair and equal. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's something um, we hope to include on our website as well. Um, But there's also this great organization called the Equal Rights Advocates, and they're based out in the Bay Area, but they're an example of another organization that has been really working towards pushing some of these laws to change and balance out the power, imbalance and power in these workplaces. And so Yes, as the next step, we, ho- we definitely hope to highlight some more of these organizations and the more of these laws that are being drafted to address this, address these barriers. Well, thank you for all of these great resources. I'm so excited to share them with our listeners. As we've come to the close of our conversation, I'd like to ask you the set of engendered questionnaire questions that I've adopted from Inside the Actor Studio, James Lipton's questionnaire. 
the first question okay. is, what's at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think what's at stake here is the lives of our future generations. I think, you know, when I think about the issues that we're fighting for through Better Brave and through uh, alongside our partners, it's a lot of it is just thinking about what is the world that we want to create for the future generations to come? And how did we let ourselves get to a place where even in the year 20, 2018, we're still struggling with these issues? Um, and women have been working for decades. And so I think something that I think a lot about is we, we really are doing the work that we're doing because we want to change what the future looks like for both our current and future generations. And I think that's what's at stake here. What gives you hope? You know, um, I think what gives me hope, especially so we through through the work that we do at Better Brave, we see and hear so many stories that can be incredibly disheartening for us. But at the same time, it gives us hope that there are so many people out there who also believe in this issue, have experienced have taken their own experiences of experiencing harassment and discrimination and have channeled that to take action. And so what we've seen um, over the past year is, you know, hundreds and thousands of both women and men who have reached out to us sharing their personal stories of, you know, trying to deal with harassment and discrimination at work. And instead of, you know, no matter how, how overwhelming it can be to uh, to bring up those stories over again and to re- be reminded of what they had gone through. Instead of doing nothing, they then reach out to us and ask, what can I do to help push this movement forward? And I think that gives us a lot of hope because we have so many incredible people who are looking to do the right thing and are looking to leverage their experiences to do more good for other people. And our final question, feel free to answer any part of this or all. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? I think what we can do more of is definitely asking ourselves, what can I do? Um, What can I do to help push this movement forward? I think thanks to Toronto Burke for the Me Too movement and thanks to the women in Hollywood who banded together to, you know, raise more, even more awareness for this issue through the Time's Up movement. We're at this rare point in time where all eyes are on this issue. And I think this is a rare moment where we have the opportunity as regular individuals to reflect on what we can do and what role we can play in pushing this movement forward. And I think it's just reminding ourselves that it's, oftentimes simpler than we think. It can be something as simple as starting a conversation with one of our friends just to say, hey, um, you know, I've, I've been seeing a lot of news about this issue. Is this something that you're familiar with? And just starting a, a conversation around it um, with the people around us to not only raise awareness for this issue, but to actually have a discussion around what we can do moving forward to change this reality. Tammy Cho, co-founder of Better Brave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you. Thank you.